Hello, listeners. This is Mike. I have a very important announcement to make at the end of the podcast. Please stay and listen to it. Thank you. Welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 326 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 10, Undocking and Reentry. On the last episode, Soyuz 10, with Shadilov, Yelizhev, and Rukovishnikov, had just achieved Prog and Drogue capture with Salyut 1. But, the IGLA control system failed during approach due to a design oversight. When soft dock was performed with the probe and drogue, the computer sensed an abnormality in the spacecraft's alignment and began firing the attitude control thrusters to compensate. With Soyuz 10 being pushed to one side by the attitude control system, it became impossible to achieve hard dock because the probe would not retract and pull in the Soyuz. To make matters worse, large quantities of propellant were expended during the attempt. Now, Soyuz 10 is hanging precariously by the probe assembly and some latches. Having no other reasonable alternative, the decision was made to undock and come home. However, it turned out that it wasn't so easy to give the command to undock. That is, the command could be given, but that didn't mean the spacecraft would undock from the station. According to the electrical diagram, undocking would proceed only if the electrical connectors were mated and hard docking was executed in its entirety. The system had been developed in a purely automatic version, and no provisions for human intervention were included in the process of executing intermediate operations. The logic of the controls was technically correct. After the tip of the active assembly's probe entered the receiving well of the passive assembly's drogue, the latches captured it and issued the capture signal. This signal initiated the retraction of the active and passive parts. The ball screw pulled the rod into the active assembly. Retraction continued until the electrical and hydraulic connectors were mated. After the mating of the connectors, special hooks emerged from the active assembly and pulled the passive assembly toward it performing the final retraction, ensuring the pressure, integrity, and strength of the interface between the two spacecraft. Only after this, 
lifted the latches holding the head of the probe in the cone's receiving drogue open. Then the probe would retract completely into the active assembly. The undock command could be issued over the command radio link from Earth or from the Soyuz console. Upon receiving this command, the retracting hooks were supposed to retract, releasing the Soyuz from its mechanical connection with the Salyut. The approach engines would execute a back-out burn, and the Soyuz would separate from the Salyut. In this long chain of operations, there was no provision for the possibility of undocking if the entire docking cycle had not been executed. The undock command wasn't capable of freeing a probe that was firmly held by the latches of the passive part of the docking assembly. However, there was a last resort emergency undocking provision that was available for such an off-nominal event. It worked like this. Upon receiving an emergency command, an explosive cartridge would jettison the probe from the active assembly, but in doing so, it would remain in the passive cone, and future docking with any other vehicle would then be impossible, thus ending the usefulness of Salute 1. There was another, less violent possibility. The orbital module could be detached from the rest of the Soyuz and left attached to Salyut 1. But this would also make it impossible for future Soyuz missions to dock, effectively abandoning the first space station. The ministers present in the control room immediately realized the political ramifications of performing either of those plans and ordered the team to figure out another way so that future flights could return to the station. The docking specialist quickly came up with another, more cumbersome plan. They suggested that one of the cosmonauts move into the orbital module and find connector number SH-28-201 and, on the instrument side, place a jumper between plug pins 30 and 34. Then, from the Soyuz console, issue a docking command and then remove the jumper. The command should pass through the circuit, removing the stops that the probe was getting stuck on in the receiving well of the drogue. They likened this plan to, quote, unlatching the door from the other side, end quote. It was a brilliant idea, but who on board the spacecraft could perform such an operation? The most likely choice was Rukavishnikov. He performed much harder tasks as an electrical engineer before he became a cosmonaut. Of course, that was never in space. So, for about an hour and a half, the ground team composed detailed instructions and transmitted them to the crew on Soyuz 10. The crew accepted the instructions very unenthusiastically. Before the plan could be carried out, one of the docking specialists recalled that there was one more alternative. 
Supposedly, it was possible to issue a command to the Salute rather than to the Soyuz, and this command would release the latches and thus free the probe. This idea was met with some skepticism because the entire mass of the vehicle was hanging from these latches, and the drive wasn't supposed to have enough power to open the latches. But they really had nothing to lose at this point, and perhaps over the time needed for the command to take effect, the vehicle would rock and the amount of force on the latches would turn out to be small. So, during the 84th orbit, this unprecedented operation was executed, and during the 85th orbit, at 0844 hours, the undocked command was received. To the relief of everyone present, undocking occurred, and the Soyuz approach engines executed a back-out burn. The Soyuz 10 spacecraft and the Salyut orbital station had flown for just under five hours in a mated state. Hardly anyone in the control room believed that the docking specialist gamble of a solution actually worked. For that reason, reports about the undocking caused considerably greater elation than during a normal docking. When things finally calmed down in the control room, a group of embarrassed docking specialists confided to Deputy Chief Designer Chertok that they didn't understand why the undocking operation had worked. It really should not have. After undocking, Soyuz 10 flew around Salyut 1, and the crew took several photographs. Externally mounted TV cameras also covered the approach, docking, and separation. This very brief flight had been intended to last 30 days. If it had, retrofire and landing could have been accomplished during daylight hours. But, with the docking problems and the excessive expenditure of fuel on the Soyuz, a landing in Soviet territory could only be achieved at night. Of course, at first, the landing commission started planning for an emergency landing in South America, Africa, or Australia. But that was a last resort measure. Instead, Shatilov reported the gyroscopes and orientation sensors were functioning well, and he proposed that he orient the Soyuz on the day side of orbit, then spin up the gyro platform and let the gyros orient the spacecraft on the night side for retrofire. The plan was quickly agreed upon, and the spacecraft was targeted for a landing in an area 80 to 100 kilometers southwest of Karaganda. Retro rockets were fired at the first opportunity. While the crew occupied the descent module, the orbital and service module were released. Having shed two-thirds of its mass, the Soyuz reached entry interface, a point 121.9 kilometers above the Earth where friction due to the thickening atmosphere began to heat its outer surfaces. With only 23 minutes left before it would land on the grassy plains of Central Asia, 
attention in the descent module turned to slowing its rate of descent. At 15 minutes before landing, four parachutes deployed, dramatically slowing the vehicle's rate of descent. Two pilot parachutes were the first to be released, and a drogue chute attached to the second one followed immediately after. The drogue, measuring 24 square meters in area, slowed the rate of descent from 230 meters per second to 80 meters per second. The main chute was the last to emerge. It was the largest chute with a surface area of 1,000 square meters. Its harnesses shifted the vehicle's attitude to a 30-degree angle relative to the ground in order to dissipate heat, and then shifted it again to a straight vertical descent prior to landing. The main chute slowed the Soyuz to a descent rate of only 7.3 meters per second, which was still too fast for a comfortable landing. One second before touchdown, two sets of three small engines on the bottom of the vehicle fired, slowing the vehicle to soften the landing. Before it touched down, its speed slowed to only 1.5 meters per second, and it landed at an even lower speed than that. But there was a problem during descent. Recall that due to the small size of the Soyuz capsule, the three cosmonauts could not wear pressure suits on the ride down. During the landing, toxic fumes began to fill the capsule, causing Rukovishnikov to pass out. However, Shatilov and Yelizhev were able to remain conscious. Rukovishnikov eventually made a full recovery. Before Soyuz 10 even landed, the Soviets were busy setting up tests to determine exactly what went wrong. After the landing, on April 26th, the commander of the mission, Shatilov, gave the following report, quote, The vehicle has good maneuverability. It responds very well during manual control. All the dynamic operations were performed without any glitches. It is true, when Igla took over rendezvous control, I was somewhat ill at ease from the frequent turns and approach and correction engine burns. At a range of 140 meters, I took over control for the final approach process. Manual final approach proceeded right away without incident. It was easier for me than on Soyuz 4 and 5. Contact was soft. There was no rattling or grating. As soon as capture occurred, the vehicle rolled to the right as much as 30 degrees, then swung back to the left. The oscillation period was 7 seconds. We were afraid we would lose the docking assembly altogether. Then the oscillations subsided. What happened during retraction? We couldn't imagine. Undocking proceeded smoothly. Visually, the station condition looks good. It's just too bad, of course, that we weren't able to get inside. Landing took place in complete darkness. We did a somersault. End quote. Yelizhev gave a more emotional report than Shatilov did. 
saying, quote, Everything was going normally, and on the whole, the vehicle systems also were functioning normally. But why did the approach engine indicator light up after contact? And why did we flail from side to side? It shouldn't have lit up. They were the reasons we were rocking so. I am amazed we didn't completely break the docking assembly. I attempted to perform a background correction of the ARS emergency range meter developed in Leningrad. The marker wandered between two and two and a half kilometers. We need to develop a method for tuning the ARS, end quote. Then Rukovishnikov complained, quote, With their instructions, the ground left us very little time to prepare for correction. With the temperature in the spacecraft set at 20 degrees C, it's very cold to sleep in a flight suit. We slept just two or three hours. Instead of sleeping, you sit and shiver. We need sleeping bags. Communication in the coverage zone is good, but when we left the zone, we were left with no communication. That is bad. When the big oscillations began, we wanted to switch on manual control and manually compensate for these disturbances, but we were afraid to. End quote. Shadilov interrupted Rukovishnikov, saying, quote, We approached with virtually zero misalignment between the vehicles and station axes. That's why we simply didn't expect that such oscillations would begin. The probe entered the receiving drogue softly without any impact, and suddenly something started that we absolutely did not expect. Before docking, the pressure in the approach engine tanks was 220 atmospheres, and afterwards it was just 140. We used up an incredibly large amount on this turbulence. End quote. After these frank conversations with the designers, the crew met with journalists hungry for space news. Everything was presented to the newsmen as if there had been no intention of performing a transfer to the station. Soyuz 10 was just a rehearsal and it demonstrated the reliability of all the systems. The official report stated, On 24 April, cosmonauts Shatilov, Yelizhev, and Rukovishnikov on Soyuz 10 conducted a series of experiments in joint flight with the Salyut station. These included the testing of the new docking mechanisms. When Chertok's design team returned from Star City, they immediately met to see what needed to be changed. By the end of the day, they agreed on a list of modifications to be made as follows. Number one, the probe should begin to retract only after the vehicle's oscillations subside. Two, there needs to be a way to control the probe manually, pulling it in and backing it out. Number three, all the automatic systems need to have a manual control backup. Number four, the dynamic specialists need to reduce the impact velocity 
to 0.2 meters per second. Number five, a special console needs to be installed on the Soyuz for manual docking control capability. And number six, in addition to the alignment levers around the probe, a good steel collar needs to be installed to support the load during oscillations. But before the changes could be made, Chertok was informed that Dmitry Ustinov, who was in charge of the Soviet military industrial complex, and the Central Committee of the Soviet Union was to visit within the week to review the docking assemblies and docking process. All staff had to be prepared to demonstrate and present solutions to the problem. After the unsuccessful docking, demonstrating the process to the Central Committee was an extremely critical matter. The top political leaders had been promised that the piloted orbital station would reduce the impact that the four U.S. lunar expeditions had made on the Soviet populace. The Central Committee took failure very poorly. It had been two and a half years since Beregovoy's unsuccessful docking in Soyuz 3. Over that time, Shatilov had flown twice. The first time, he achieved a successful docking. The second time, the docking process failed, supposedly through the fault of the radio system. Now, finally Shatilov docked, but he couldn't enter Salyut 1. The committee members sought out who to punish for this failure. They demanded the designer be identified. It was Lev Vilnitsky. Vilnitsky promised to have the modifications to the docking assembly completed within a week, ready to be tested. Everyone was given a verbal tongue lashing, and a task report was issued saying that Comrade Vilnitsky made a mistake. In a week, he will make amends, and the next crew will make it through the hatch to the Salyut. Other punishments were not documented. from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 326 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Soyuz 10, Docking and Reentry. Okay, on to the important announcement. After nearly seven years of weekly episodes, I need to make a change. For over a year, I have found it very difficult to keep up with weekly releases. As you know, I have the original podcast and the archive podcast now. The original podcast has grown to the point of being a full-time job. 
and I just can't find the time to continue at this rate. To make matters more challenging, my schedule for 2020 will be much more busy than 2019. With the increased workload and the difficulties in raising funds this year, I got a little discouraged, and I began to think it might be a good time to end the podcast, to go out on a high note, so to speak. But I couldn't get used to that idea. I would miss the podcast and my wonderful listeners that I have thought of as friends. So, I began to think of alternatives. After months of thinking it through, this is what I came up with. I want to go to an every other week release of the podcast and make the episodes longer. So beginning in January of 2020, I will do my best to produce at least 75% of the content you receive now with new episodes every other week. I plan no more Encore episodes in 2020, since 325 episodes are available to listen to any time. To repeat, next year, starting in January, we will have 26 new, longer episodes. Now, I do want to stress, I'm not cutting the podcast in half. This is a 25% reduction only. I plan on producing at least 75% of the content you received this year. So, how did I determine the length of the episode so that you would receive 75% content of last year? I calculated it like this. This year, I will produce 45 new episodes. Episode 328 will be the last episode this year. Each episode is about 30 minutes long. If you multiply 45 episodes by 30 minutes, you will get 1,350 minutes of content that you will receive this year. Next year, you should receive 75% of the content, so I multiplied 1,350 minutes by 0.75, which equals 1,012 and a half minutes. That will be my target for 2020. That content will be delivered in 26 episodes. To determine the length of the episodes for 2020, I divided 1,012.5 minutes by 26 episodes and got 38.94 minutes per episode. Then I decided to round it up to 40 minutes. So instead of 30-minute episodes, I will aim for approximately 40 minutes per episode delivered every other week. Of course, I may go longer. So, for 2020, I plan for 26 episodes of approximately 40 minutes, which will give you 75% of the content you received last year. If you have any questions, I'm creating a post of this information on the website and on Patreon. I'm making this announcement early in December to leave plenty of time for my donors to adjust or end their financial support if they wish. I'm very thankful for my financial supporters, so I want them to always feel free to change or delete your support at any time. If you're not happy with the podcast, please, please, please do not support it. 
I don't want any support from someone who is not glad to do so. want to sincerely apologize for having to make this change, but I think most of you will agree that it is better than ending the podcast altogether. Thanks for your support over the years. Okay, that was kind of gloomy and a little bit difficult to do. Let's move on. I want to recognize the financial supporters that came in this past week. Skibby donated at the Orion level and earned a shooting star emoji. Marie from Belgium donated at the Gemini level. Angus W. donated at the Sputnik level and earned a rocket emoji. Phil D. from New Zealand donated at the Vostok level. Daniel M. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Edward N. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Thank you for your support. That brings our total up to 450 contributors so far this year with a goal of reaching 600. And our Patreon donors actually went down quite a bit after the end of the November to December transition. And we lost about five donors. So we are at uh, 240 donors with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. I want to remind everyone it's not too late to contribute for 2019. If you enjoyed the content provided in 2019 and would like to support the podcast, you can go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. It's also a very good time to make the emoji maneuver. Okay, here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Gabriele Consiglio. Gabriele Consiglio if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we'll mail this out to you. Thank you to all 450 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. Hey, you probably didn't know that Mrs. SRH is fluent in four languages, one of them being Italian. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I'll try to have episode number 327 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.